Thank you, Jamie and Calvin, for reading. Uh, We're talking this morning about home and finding home uh, during the Advent season. And uh, Pico Iyer is a novelist and essayist. He's one of those people that always has something interesting to say and is frequently interviewed on NPR or podcast and does TED Talks that a lot of people um, watch and listen to. And he's written a great deal on the idea of home in a a postmodern, globalized, sort of hyper-connected world. And he said in a TED Talk a number of years ago, uh, reflecting on his uh, grandparents' uh, generation, when my grandparents were born, they pretty much had their sense of home, their sense of community, even their sense of enmity assigned to them at birth. And they didn't have much uh, of a chance of stepping outside of that. Nowadays, at least some of us can choose our sense of home. We can create our sense of community. We can fashion our sense of self. Now, that's why so many of us are in uh, Portland. It offers us a, a certain type of community. In town, so many of us are in town because it replicates a certain type of feeling of family that we, we choose often unilaterally to belong to. We create a sense of belonging, a sense of place. As my printer all of a sudden goes off right beside the microphone, I'm sorry if you can not hear me. But it's, it's quite uncommon in our day and age to be born and also die in the same city. And it's almost unheard of to belong to the same church from our baptism to our funeral, even if we live in the same city our entire life. By virtue of living in the 21st century, we're relatively rootless people. We're exiles that are seeking a place to call home. Now, we're actually going to focus this morning on the first reading, the Old Testament reading, um, Jeremiah chapter 31, as he is writing to exiles who are alienated from home. They're on the move constantly. They're rootless. They're seeking a place to call home. Now, they wanted to return to their homeland to be sure, but Jeremiah is telling us of a much deeper longing, not just for a a piece of physical soil, but a, a place for their souls to belong. Now we know historically that they did return to the so-called promised land, to Israel. And God tells them in verse 10, he who scattered Israel will gather them. This was predictive. That's why it's called a prophetic book. And then verse 16, they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Now this happens as I happened as I said and you can read about it in the the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But we know from reading the poetry and from reading the historical record as well as the prophecy that they they weren't longing simply for a strip of land that was familiar that was their homeland, but they wanted to be there because that's where they saw God as residing at least most fully. But notice 
Notice the language that's attached to their return to the promised land. The promises are completely over the top. They're what we would call utopian. Throughout these five verses, we read of rejoicing, of dancing, of gladness, of comfort, of shouting for joy, and no more sorrow. Now, there's a sense in which as they crossed over into the promised land, that there certainly was gladness. There certainly would have been shouting for joy, but these words take on a more lasting meaning. In fact, an eternal one. Now, we know that they never fully occupied the promised land as their own. They went from exile to exile to exile, and then as they returned, They were still under the thumb of the Persian Empire and then the Roman Empire. So in a sense, these prophecies haven't been fully fulfilled. Now, we could reason that either Jeremiah just didn't know what he was talking about. This utopian vision is just pie in the sky. But it's not just him, but it's Ezekiel. It's Isaiah. It's Amos. It's, yes, Jesus. Were they all completely delusional about the future? Or could we reason that there's still a fulfillment of this prophecy that's yet to come? That while Israel returning back to their land was completed, it was only an image of a deeper completion that is yet to come. Meaning that wrapped up in all of these images of a promised land, In all of these images of celebration is embedded in those things God's pledge to end a much deeper exile. And there's a deeper need, right, that even the most abundant land won't fulfill. There's a deeper existential, spiritual, emotional need that money, that family, that children, that career, that city, that church will never be able to fulfill. Verse 11, Jeremiah says, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. There's something that we need that we can't fulfill, that we can't find on our own. We can't find our way home all by ourselves. We need to be delivered. We need to be led home. Now, there's one who wants to lead us home, thankfully. And he wants to lead us home not by coercion and not by just laying out the path for us to navigate on our own. But he wants to lead us home with motherly tears. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the imagery? There's a very peculiar verse that gives us this very tender, very moving image of God. In verse 15, this is what the Lord said. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are three times 
Rachel's tears are mentioned in the Bible. In Genesis 38, and then we read of them being mentioned here in Jeremiah 31, and then Matthew 2, just a little bit beyond what we read for our third reading this morning. Now, in Genesis 38, Jacob had gone to this area that is known as Padam Aram, and it's far east of Israel. And he had agreed to work for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, but then he had been tricked and had to work seven more. Now, Rachel had been unable to get pregnant for quite some time, which is kind of a recurring theme in the Old Testament. But she finally had a son, Joseph, of Coat of Many Colors fame, and now was pregnant with Benjamin. But on the way back to the promised land, this long journey westward with her husband, they stop so that she can give birth. And as, she get, as she's giving birth, she dies. And she names this second son, Ben-Ani, son of my mourning or son of my tears. The second time Rachel's tears are mentioned is here in Jeremiah. But what's happening in Ramah is very different. In Genesis, you see Rachel was on her way to the promised land. Here in Jeremiah, Ramah is a way station for exiles on their way where? On their way to captivity in Babylon. Now you can imagine the the weeping that comes from being exiled. Loss of home, loss of status, loss of work, loss of community. And somehow Rachel's tears here are meant to be representative of that exile and representative of the exile and the homelessness that we all feel. Rachel, you see, had tried to make her way in the world by finding the the right marriage, by having many children and being fruitful, by being desired above her sister Leah, by her fertility. But she, she was blocked. She was blocked from finding the meaning that she longed for. Her sister had grown up and had many children while she had only had two. And she never got to see them grow up. She died full of tears. She died in exile. She died in exile. Her deepest longings unfulfilled. And then Rachel's tears a third time in Matthew 2, which we'll read next week. It's a classic Christmas passage, an Advent passage. Joseph is told to take Jesus out of Bethlehem because why? Because Herod, the king of the Jews, the Tetrarch, not a full king, is killing infants in order to kill Jesus. And his parents flee Jerusalem to Egypt. Now these children back in in Israel, rather, are systematically murdered. And once again, what is happening? Mothers are weeping over lost children while Jesus goes into exile. And it's in this moment, Matthew tells us, that Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled. What these three very stylized stories, what the Bible is telling us is that Rachel's weeping is a weeping of exile. And in a, a very literary way that Jesus 
being born into exile and going to Egypt in further exile is somehow an answer to these tears. Jesus, you see, was always in exile. Even when he returned with his family from Egypt, the historic land of desolation and of exile, he lived, even in Israel, exiled from his religious community, which rejected him. He lived in exile from the comforts of this world. He lived in exile from normal family life, where he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man doesn't have a place to even lay his head. He was literally and metaphorically homeless. Now, Herod sought to kill him because people had anointed Jesus as king of the Jews, but it is Pilate some 30 years later that finally does him in. And Luke tells us, When he approaches Jerusalem near the end of his life, he sees the capital of this land of promise that is turned away from the promises of God. He sees this city where Rachel was headed and where Rachel attached so much of her hopes to. He sees Jerusalem and he weeps over it. He, like Rachel, cries tears. Matthew says that when he wept, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wished I could take you under my wings. There's that motherly language again, the language of a mother bird. While the Bible consistently talks about God in masculine terms, it doesn't shy away from also talking about God and Jesus in feminine terms. Jesus is weeping like a mother, like Rachel weeping for a child that she doesn't get to see grow up, or in Jesus' case, weeping over a city that he loves so much, but which has rejected him and rejected God. He's crying for a city that he loves, but which has become a rebellious child. And like Rachel, he dies for this child. He will die in labor so Jerusalem, so you and I can be born again. He goes to a cross, which itself is outside the city. He was cast out. He was sent to ultimate exile in order to put an end to ours. There's a great film made in 2005 by Andrei Kravchuk. It's called uh, The Italian. It's about a six-year-old abandoned boy named Vanya, and he's enduring the severities and the injustices of the Russian orphanage system. And a wealthy Italian couple comes eager to adopt a child, and they choose Vanya, and they make plans to take him back to their villa in Italy. To Vanya's fellow inmates. It's an impossible dream come true to leave what seems like an endless winter to escape to Italy, to Italy where the warm sun rises over the Mediterranean, where fields of grapes and olives and figs grow. It's a a dreamlike place. But right before leaving, Vanya discovers his biological mother is still alive. 
And he chooses not to go with this lovely family to beautiful Italy. He wants to find his mother because somehow he knows that that's where home is. So he escapes from the orphanage and he sneaks on board a commuter train to where his mom lives, pursued relentlessly by corrupt staff and police. He refuses to give up hope. He's been exiled from his home, from his experience of belonging, of of meaning, and of love. And this little boy risks everything to reclaim it. Now, a kid named Anton is adopted in Vanya's place by the Italian couple, and they begin to write letters back and forth to one another. And one of them in return, Vanya writes to Anton and says, Hello, Anton, and thanks for your letter. I didn't know that oranges also grow where you live. Here, it rains all the time, but it is very warm inside. Vanya, you see, didn't get the home of his dreams, but and he didn't get the good weather or the beautiful vistas in Italy, but he was willing to receive less than an ideal house, less than an ideal setting, freezing in Russia because that's where his mother was. That's where home was. She offered him, you see, a home that no one else and nothing else could give him. We spend a great deal of our time, like Rachel, trying to build, to construct our sense of home, often from scratch and mostly with our own ingenuity and under our own power. Maybe like her, it's having children, making sure they're successful. Maybe it's moving to an exciting place, a place that's deliberately different from the place that we grew up. Like Pico Iyer, we are, by these decisions, fashioning a sense of self, our preferred self, our imagined self, and our sense of home. Friends, nice vistas are great. The warm sun is fantastic. Living in a cool town with excellent food and coffee is tremendous. But these things can never be our home. Because our longings for home, in our truest sense, is far stronger than all of these things can ever provide for. Because we're spiritual exiles, searching not simply for a piece of soil, but a piece of soul. We want, don't we? We want rejoicing and dancing and gladness and comfort and shouting for joy. We want no more sorrow. We have promises that speak to this. Our third lesson in Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, his home, it is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What we see here to conclude is that we don't need to go on a quest to find home. Home comes down. God comes to dwell with us. And all we have to do is to receive. He comes to wipe away our tears and making the whole world into home, into our true home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are exiles, that there is a hope that our future will not be fully cut off. Would you dry our tears in this prolonged season of suffering? Because your son wept the bitterest tears of all. Your son was cast out. And so therefore we can know that you will bring us in. We pray that you would help us to live the kinds of lives that go along with that kind of knowledge. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.